Hi, welcome to the Breakthrough Podcast, a series by Second Home, where we meet the most cutting edge and inspiring entrepreneurs and innovators of our day. In this episode, we're joined by the groundbreaking leader and VP of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at Snap Inc, Una King, and the Development Director for BBC News and Current Affairs, Kitty Lloyd, to discuss her approach to reform and transformative change. The second woman of color elected to the British Parliament, Una has guided diversity and inclusion strategies at Channel 4, YouTube and Google, and built a legacy of radical change across policy, law and business. This event was presented by Second Home and the Baguren Institute. It's part of a new series that brings together the most inspiring and celebrated figures of our time to exchange and discuss groundbreaking cultural, social and political ideas. Enjoy. I was absolutely delighted to be asked to come and speak to Una today. Um, for those of you that don't know, and I'm sure many of you do, um, and I apologise if I run out of breath doing this because Una has achieved a lot in her career, but Una is currently Vice President of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion at SNAP. Prior to that, she was Director of Diversity Strategy at Google, Director of Diverse Marketing at YouTube, Chief Diversity Officer for UK Broadcaster Channel 4. Una is a member of the House of Lords and former senior advisor to the British Prime Minister. At 29, Una became the second woman of colour and 200th woman ever to be elected to the British Parliament. Um, she's achieved a huge amount during her political career, not least her role as Shadow Minister for Equalities, where Una introduced the Amendment to Parliament that requires all businesses with employees over 250 people to report on their gender pay gap. That This has led to huge changes. Um, I'm sure many of you will be aware. Um, so it's an absolute privilege to have you with us, Una. Thank you so much. And how are you? Hi, Katie. Yeah, I'm good. I always feel suitably in that British way, absolutely embarrassed and horrified when you read that out. And I think of all my failures. But thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll take it. Lovely to be here. Well, I think it's reassuring for all of us that you also feel like that, because I think other people feel like that. But I can't believe you do. Um, and I hope that as we go through the conversation, we can pick on some of the different things you've achieved and made happen in those different roles I've just gone through. Um, but I thought it was worth saying what I thought we shouldn't use this um, finite time for. I thought we shouldn't use it for why diversity is important. There's a huge amount of stuff out there saying that we don't need to say that we know diverse companies outperform those that are not. Um, so I thought we could use it to talk about the practical things um, that you have done, that you have led and the changes, the things that have worked and maybe the things that haven't as well. Um, so we can all learn from uh, what you have done. And I just want to say to everyone, there's a Q&A function there. Don't forget to type your questions into um, the Q&A there and we'll try and get to some of them towards the end. Uh, so Una, in preparation for this, I was thinking, oh, what can I do? What can I read? And I actually spent the entire weekend reading your book, House Music. And I just want to say, I love the title. I, I couldn't stop reading the book. I was thinking, oh, I better do this in preparation. It's absolutely brilliant, highly recommend it. Um, and as a working mother myself, I have to say there is this absolutely brilliant quote um, where you describe being a working mother in politics as locked in a washing machine on a manic spin cycle. And I'm sure there are many parents on the call that can relate to that, particularly any in the States right now who still have the schools closed as you do, or anybody in the UK who did have that experience earlier in the year. Um, but the reason I raised that is because throughout your book, you're incredibly honest and you show your vulnerabilities and you wear them on your sleeve. Um, it's inspiring for people like me reading it as a working mother, I have two young boys, um, but for also, also other people to have that. How important is it in business um, that for leaders to show vulnerability and to show this kind of be real and um, authentic in the way that they're leading? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there, there are tons of business books now, aren't they? All saying, hey, if you want authenticity, uh, you should use vulnerability as a business skill. Like you will have more influence as we move away from the kind of authoritarian business model of getting things done. Um, I mean, you know, I say move away from an author authoritarian uh, point of view, obviously, been in America the last four years um, and it hasn't really felt as though we're necessarily <laughs> moving away from that hopefully uh, a bit more now but I, I think you know for me uh, it wasn't a business strategy <laughs> it was kind of a necessity it's also like I have to kind of 
I don't mean make light of things, but especially, you know, when I became an MP and the areas that I was tackling was that were around like just the huge poverty in East London domestically and then genocide and international development or lack thereof internationally. You, you can't really, I, I couldn't uh, absorb all of that without just being honest and real and a little bit humorous because otherwise you would just kill yourself. I mean, really you would, it's, uh, it's too much. Um, and so I hope people don't ever take that as flippant, but that's my way of dealing with it. Um, and I think, you know, I, I do, it's funny to me now, I read these things about how business leaders must, m must use vulnerability as part of their strategy. Um, I, I do think, you know, when, when people show me vulnerability, it invites me in to have a conversation. So yeah, I think it makes sense. Um, I was just brought up by uh, a, a mother who was like that naturally. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, yes, it is probably a good business strategy, but just do it to be a, a nice human being and not be like, I'm the best, I'm the biggest, um, because we can all learn so much else. Anyway, stop me before I drift into more business <laughs> attitudes, but you know, yes, it's important. No, but being, but just do it your way, I guess, is what you're saying, be yourself. And in terms of sticking with that point around leadership, though, and in the diversity, equity and inclusion space, what kind of leaders do we need at the top of businesses right now in order to see real change in those spaces? What do we need to see from our leaders? You know, this is a really interesting question because I've been working in one way or another in the diversity space or the DEI space or the DNI space or the equality space or whatever you want to call it now. I call it DEI. Um, I've been working in that space for 20 years and I ask myself what I didn't have in the past. And always in the past, what I didn't have was a leader or a CEO who actually understood equity beyond the intellectual case. And the reason that's important is when you think about the events of 2020, um, and especially because my uh, I have an African-American family and a white British family, that mixture, but just the very different realities that those two communities have. So, you know, when I was growing up, my white gran would say to me, you know, Una, love, you get lost, you find a policeman, the policeman will take care of you. And my African-American family was like, if you get lost, this is the last person you would ever go to is a policeman because they'll beat you to death, most likely, was kind of the message that I got from both of them. And the thing is that they were both right. You know, the, those worldviews were both correct for those experiences what leaders haven't really understood many of them until the brutal murder of George Floyd and the media consumption around that is that you have to understand this beyond an intellectual level and so the reason you know or, or rather what we are doing to reshape our approach um, at SNAP is to say, you know, our, our diversity annual report, it says I, I've written enough of them in my lifetime and they all basically say the same thing. They all basically say, hey, we need leadership <laughs> uh, in this area and we need accountability. That, you know, any diversity report will say that. What it doesn't get to is the fact that actually you need inspiration. That inspiration can be negative or positive. Um, you know, I'd say maybe London 2012 Olympics was a positive inspiration about what diversity can bring. The murder of George Floyd was a negative inspiration, but it literally inspired countless members of the majority group, predominantly the white community in America, to literally say, oh, my God, that I, I need to take some responsibility for this, because if I am not actively part of the solution, then I'm inadvertently part of the problem. And for leaders to make that leap is huge. And I saw it with my own eyes happen at SNAP. And it's incredible. It is, the difference is incredible. And so I do think this is a moment and we have to, you know, recognize that and not in a cynical way, but in a very proactive way, leverage that without relying on like the countless murders of underrepresented people in society to recognize this is an emergency and we must lead, we must act, we must be accountable and we must inspire the majority group. We can't just keep preaching to the choir. 
Yeah, yeah. And I was going to I was going to bring this up actually with you in terms of pre summer and what's happened throughout the summer um, in terms of racial equality. Obviously, um, it triggered a lot of businesses to say something when it comes to racial equality. And we saw that work for some businesses and not work for some businesses. Um, how much do you think that there's been a kind of moment where it's a reaction to a crisis? And how much do you think this is permanent lasting change? Look, DEI has always been, any progress in DEI has always been a reaction to a crisis. Tragically, that is human nature. I remember when I got hired to be Chief Diversity Officer for Channel 4, why was that reporting directly to the CEO? It was because the cameras had been camped outside Channel 4 for three months as a result of like a racist crisis uh, in programming over Big Brother. You know, it is a crisis that always pushes people to reevaluate the status quo. So um, yeah, some of it is in undoubtedly of the moment, but I do think there has been a fundamental shift. And this is the job that anyone who's interested in equity or making progress needs to understand. This is the job we have to do in the next six to 12 months before it just turns back to a moment, not a movement. <laughs> we have to tie in DEI outcomes and metrics into the core business plan of every organization. And what would happen in the past is you'd have the diversity annual report and the DEI strategy. And it was like a separate thing. Like, okay, yeah, Snap published a DEI, a, a diversity annual report uh, in July, but it has now formed like the heart in some respects of the actual business plan that the entire company is working off to deliver in for, for next year. So it's that you, you've got to make those moves now while the recognition is there that we need that to build in the accountability and the mechanisms to get DEI at the heart of the process, not an add-on and an afterthought. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. It has to be in the business plan. I can see lots of people in the chat agreeing with you um, as well. As, so you just referred to there your work at Snap. Do you want to tell us a bit more about what you've been leading at Snap and your three eyes, I think they're called? Um, yeah, so this basically came out of a conversation I had with my CEO when he, and I have to say it has been, like, I didn't believe it before I went there. Like, I swear to God, no bullshit. <laughs> It's been unbelievable to work with a CEO who, if anything, is marginally ahead of me. And I'm like, not possible. Young white dude, not possible. <laughs> like, but it's just where he spent a lot of his time, effort and thinking uh, over the last how many years. Um, and that, you know, this has just been like transformational. Um, but what we've what, what he challenged me to do was he said, look, what are the three things that everyone should do if they want to make a difference in this area like make it simple for people what are the three things and I'm like yeah all right it's a great ambition to have three things but this is like what are we going to deal with race in America or <laughs> the world <laughs> centuries long issue or 5,000 years of patriarchy or whatever it might be is Lord, I'm going to give you a, a to-do list with three items on it that's not gonna <laughs> that's not gonna work but what it made me realize is there are actually three areas that everyone can remember. If you want to make a difference, and when you ask, because you're not sure how to make the difference, which is fine, you ask, what should I do? The answer lies in these three eyes always, again and again, come back to these three eyes. The first eye is internal. You have to change the way you actually think <laughs> about things and think about what DEI is. And that I, I put a piece on LinkedIn giving a lot more examples of what I might mean by that, it, you know, on a, uh, an article called Right Side of History, because I do, you know, people want to be on the right side of history, but they're like, what do I do before breakfast? <laughs> what do I do this week, you know, to make sure that I end up on the right side of history? So the first I is internal, change the way you're thinking about things. The second thing is interpersonal, change your behaviors with others. And this is especially in a corporate space or, or an organizational space um, or society at large. And the third thing is institutional, then change the system. I think the reason DEI has failed fundamentally, and I have been part of that failure as well, for the last 20 years, 
is because although I was always thinking about the institutional, how can I change the system? And to a large extent, I was thinking about the interpersonal behaviors, like in a company, how do you actually make the performance review system work in such a way as it's not biased? What should you be doing to change the recruiting structure so it's not biased? How are you gonna measure the data so that some groups, you know, attrition rates aren't through the roof. So in fact, it doesn't matter what you do with hiring because you're losing more people than you bring it. Like there's all that stuff. But if you haven't changed the way people themselves internally have engaged with this issue and that might be men in terms of what women are dealing with it might be white people in terms of what people of color are dealing with it might be able-bodied people like me in terms of what the disability community is dealing with or someone like a straight person like me engaging with lgbtq plus just because you're from an underrepresented group doesn't mean you don't have to change your thinking <laughs> um, and so what we've done there with the three eyes is say, look, wherever you're coming from, whatever, wherever you are on the journey, you've got to think internal, interpersonal, institutional, and that way, holistically, we have far greater chances of success. That's brilliant. And it's, it's really, really clear as well. So easy for people to take away from this. And I know lots of people listening and looking for practical things they can do in their own companies. Um, so just keeping with this theme around change, Una, you've worked in politics, tech and broadcasting and all with a common theme really around being a change maker, trying to drive through kind of that progressive agenda. And lots of people as you know, on, on this will be responsible for that or want to as an individual create change um, in their organization. You've done it in some of the toughest environments probably that there are. Um, what are the key levers in terms of the driving that change through? So you've got your strategy there with your three eyes, you've, or you had your plan, I'm sure with those policies you were driving through in politics. What were the key things that led you to success to get through to the, that point? I'd say that um, one thing that's really important that I was going to say it doesn't come naturally to me, but I guess it does because I've always done it. Still, it can be tricky. You need to engage the majority. So I think of the that I ever brought before Parliament, and um, it was basically to protect working rights if for workers that got contracted out who were losing their you know holiday pay sick pay everything and the labor government at the time they didn't want to give up their own government time for it they were like oh yeah you know you can do that you just need to get agreement from the cbi you know the business organization in the uk and the tuc the union organization i was like oh in other words you know go and get a piece in the middle east and it'll all be fine you know it's like it was a very unattainable thing at the time um what i did was i made friends with the most right wing person in parliament who it was his sport to kick out labor members uh, bills private members bills because an individual has that power for private members bills an individual member parliament anyway and i remember meeting him for the first time and he was like i mean anyone in part anyone in the uk might remember him he died a few years ago his name was eric forth anyway and he met me and he, we sat down for tea in the in parliament in the tea room and he goes I suppose you think you're going to charm me into letting your bill through, but there's absolutely no chance of that. And I was like, oh, no, 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 Eric, just want to have a cup of tea. Just, you know, how do you think about things? Because it's quite different to the way I think about things. Anyway, we met kind of like on and off, like not necessarily each week, but like about twice a month for a year. And at the end of that year, just because I sat and spoke to him, and he knew about me, he knew about my kids, he, well, that I wanted actually, like, <laughs> he, knew, he knew about my life and he didn't kill um, my private members bill at the time. I think he probably did kill it a bit later, but it was the only one at a certain point that got through of all of them. And I'm, I will always go and talk to the person who truly doesn't believe in having more equity, because I don't think you can start from the assumption that they are deeply wrong and evil. I mean, you do sometimes have to get to that conclusion after a point, <laughs> but it is never, ever my starting assumption. And that has really, for everything, for the legislation you mentioned before about, um, uh, you know, about companies having to report on their gender pay equity, getting the conservatives to support that as well um, at the time. Uh, you know, I've always, always started with that. And I, I do think that is important. And the corollary of that is comes back to always just don't have the DEI conversations preaching to the choir. Like, yes. it's, 
that's not going to change anything. It's comforting, but it doesn't change anything. That would be the single biggest thing. And then I could give you <laughs> many, many others. But um, I think, you know, tying accountability, getting the mechanisms in place, are absolute, that's, that is absolutely critical. But the biggest thing I found, like, is this difference of having a CEO and a leader who yeah. actually genuinely gets it and not just intellectually. I mean, I, there's not a quick solve for that. That again goes back to the three eyes. It's like, hey, Mr. CEO, usually Mr. Not always, you know, have you done the work? Do you, ha have you read about any of this? Have you listened to the lives that people are leading? Do you have any idea what it means to be trying to pay down student debt, you know, in your first two years in a workplace? Um, do, do you have an idea, you know, uh, what it means to come to work with a disability? Like m most of the time they don't care because they don't know. And just being able to get leaders to change their interaction is, is super important as well. And, and some of that, some of what you're talking about involves having quite uncomfortable, sometimes in uncomfortable conversations, doesn't it? And sitting with that discomfort. For, a lot of people find that quite difficult and they think immediately that being uncomfortable or discomfort, oh, I shouldn't be doing this or I'm doing it wrong. But obviously that is a really important part of the change cycle, isn't it? No, there's a ton of research to demonstrate beyond doubt that you will not get change without discomfort. Um, what I used to say to people, I remember this one example when I was at Downing Street and um, I was writing, I was drafting, a, a, you know, a, like an early draft of something that Gordon Brown was going to go and give uh, to the Kennedy Center in the US. And he'd said to me, you know, draw an outline of morality in the 20th century from Gandhi to Martin Luther King and JFK and whatever. And I kept sending him these drafts and he kept sending them back. And, and it, it was a Friday night because that's when he used to do speeches, whatever. <laughs> I'd wanted to watch Breaking Bad, but you know, it all went a bit wrong. Anyway, and then, and then I kept sending these things through and he kept like just crossing them out. And in the end, because it was about moral authority, and in the end, it was like two o'clock in the morning, the baby was about to wake up. And I just, it was again like this being very sleep deprived. And he sent this last one back just saying, no, rewrite it. And I went completely mental. Uh, I mean, I just lost it. I lost it as much as I've ever lost it in terms of writing to my boss. And I wrote this email just going, if you think we're ever going to get any moral authority by just rewriting this speech another 50 times, that's not understanding what moral authority is. Because moral authority is about action. It's not about words. And if you want to demonstrate moral authority, then you should think about, and I just like at random picked this example of um, cluster bombs because I've campaigned on them for years. Um, you know, get, get the military to ban cluster bombs, like as an example, and the foreign office will tell you you can't do it. And the MOD will tell you you can't do it. But hey, guess what? You're the prime minister, just do it. I mean, it was just absurd. And I sent this off and he never replied. And I was just like, oh my God, I've just lost my job and I was so sleep deprived. And why would I write such an uncomfortable email? When I read it the next morning, I was like, you, you lost your mind. Um, and then like, I didn't see him. He went to the US to give this speech <laughs> about two weeks later. I just, I, I heard on the early morning news, you know, from the BBC in a surprise announcement, the government has banned the use of cluster bombs by the military. And I was just like, oh my God. That is the line I've always tried to walk of like, yeah. how uncomfortable can you make someone that they will make the change and not just walk off and slam the door? And I honestly thought I'd done the latter, not the former. Um, and I also know I wouldn't have had the courage to do that if I hadn't been utterly sleep deprived. Um, and, you know, been working on a speech at two o'clock in the morning on a Friday night. Um, so I, that's a question I ask myself all the time. How, how do you find that line and how can you get there without huge amounts of sleep deprivation and, and calm judgment? You know, it's, it's yeah. not an easy call, but know that if you're not making people uncomfortable, you will not be making change.
yeah I think that's su it's such an important point and lots of people are reacting to your stories in the chat you know I can see them popping up and I have to just say I sound like your publicist but read Una's book because there's loads of these stories in there and it is absolutely amazing at the insights into what it takes to be an MP and be in parliament and what it's like as a woman and as a woman of colour and a Jewish woman of colour all these layers you talk about all of these things so brilliantly so again as your I just tell you can I just tell you that my publisher at the time which was Bloomsbury she said to me oh you know yeah I really like your book and there's another book that it really reminds me of and we're publishing them both at the same time anyway the other one turned out to be like eat pray love became an international bestseller like film everything and she was like oh yeah no you're sort of sank without trace but anyway I'm glad it's entertaining someone <laughs> I'm gonna say it now I prefer yours um well look, let's go back to one of the biggest topics right now COVID we're still in the middle sometimes we kind of we get through our days, don't we? We've got to just do our jobs at the moment and, you know, act as though nothing's happening. But as you said, your kids are still at home. People fundamentally work and the way we work has massively changed. Um, and it's triggered a huge change um, in what we do. Now, when we talk about inclusion, that's often about bringing people together, getting different people's voices heard, different perspectives, diversity of thought. How do you think this pandemic and what we've been through is going to affect um, the diversity, equity and inclusion space? And do you think there's just positives or positives and negatives? What is your viewpoint on that? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I, I think I think the jury might be out overall, but I do anticipate improvements in terms of for example if okay I, I work in the tech space it's so I'm thinking you know there's a, a huge failure in terms of diversity equity and inclusion in the tech space um, a huge underrepresentation, um, and sometimes things like site strategy where companies are going to expand would be one of the strongest drivers of DEI but people don't want to go to where underrepresented groups are particularly in the US, I mean, this is a, a US thing. Um, remote working means you can circumvent that. So, you know, there will be some clear benefits uh, in terms of building a more diverse team from just having an all on embrace of remote working. Any working parent will tell you, I mean, I guess it depends how many kids you have and how sweet they are. But from my point of view, it is a living hell. Like four kids, any of which could bust in at any minute, um, being homeschooled, which they have been since March. Um, it's just mentally, um, I, I mean, it's unbearable. And I'm one of the most privileged people on earth. So, you know, what about the, the single mother, you know, on, on, on the 15th floor? It, it barely, you can barely comprehend uh, the amount of pressure and I, I know people don't I know co-workers colleagues um they don't understand the pressure it places on me I don't expect them to necessarily uh it, it would be nice uh if they did a bit more but so you know that that the, the positives from that are that women will be able to have more flexible working the negatives from that is that and I shouldn't just say women obviously there will be some men that do take the majority of care caring responsibilities but but on the whole we know often it is women that are taking that responsibility and all it means is that the pressure has increased massively both on the home front and the employment front so yeah there will be some positive uh outcomes but for me it will only really be positive when they like in America, there's no, um, that people aren't really thinking of flexible working in terms of part-time working. You know, flexible working is kind of like, that's what the gig economy does. <laughs> it's like, well, then how is that going to work for people that do have caring responsibilities, a life, et cetera? So I, yeah, it's a bit of a wishy-washy answer. I do think it is too early to tell, but there are some very clear, obvious negatives and positives. And it is our job uh, to drive the positives, um, you know, every opportunity. Absolutely. And I have to say, I just hope the schools open for you soon because we did six months with the schools closed and it was so, it was the absolutely hands down the hardest thing I've had to do. So completely empathising for all the other parents on the call when the schools do open, it is a, an amazing moment. And I think you could hear champagne bottles kind of, you know, going off and whoops from parents all over the place. But also it did then kind of hint at that silver lining that could be down the road for parents in general and parents and, uh, who are working, that once there, there is childcare back, um, actually there could be some good things out of this and maybe people, this notion of working from home won't be seen as such a radical um, idea. 
Um, so this By the is way, what Katie, been... you, mentioned, yeah. you mentioned, can I just quickly say, you mentioned some things on the chat. I'm not even going to attempt to try and read it now because I just wouldn't be able to concentrate on the conversation, but I'd love it if you could um, save for me the chat. Yeah, we'll get clever one? Yeah, so I can see it. Uh, that would be great. Thank you. I know you, I'm desperate to read it too, and it's impossible. I keep seeing comments popping up, but you can't do it and have the conversation at the same time. Um, this is kind of a big question, but going back to representation in businesses, you know, at the top, how far do you think we are? And it might be an unfair question, but how far do you think we are from true representation at the top of businesses? And is there a difference in terms of where we are from what you see in the UK and USA? Well, clearly we're just like miles and miles away. Um, what I think it would be helpful for businesses to do is to actually, and we haven't done this at Snap yet, but we are looking to do it, um, is to actually articulate this is how long representation will take and define what representation is. I mean, I would say, you know, for each uh, region nationally it would be the the national population is the north star it's the aspiration and then you will have milestones on the way to that which may be the uh, to, to reflect the workforce which is not the same as the population etc um with variations for regional <clears throat> differences um so yeah i think we are we're so far away from it and also, I've got to say that in tech, and I know it's the same in other areas, in, in some instances, we're moving further away. And obviously, COVID has increased that. I mean, I think of the, the, the workforce and the pipeline for tech at the moment. And there are some of the most underrepresented groups, some of the most underprivileged students, first generation students who now, like they might be in their final year of college. COVID means they've lost the employment they had. They can't pay their last amount of tuition they're getting kicked out of their halls of residence they're told to go home those kids don't have the nice house with the bank of mum and dad to stack them up so my point is that in some areas we are going in the wrong direction so i you know i i, I can't give you the timeline though i'm asking businesses to actually for their own business and their own industry they should articulate that timeline we did yeah. that in parliament and it was quite entertaining i mean not, i mean that's my you know sarcastic humor but it was kind of entertaining to see the majority of white men essentially often rejecting things that would accelerate it but not recognizing, okay, if the status quo continues, then it will be 250 years, <laughs> you know, until we have gender parity. So I do think you need to work out the timeline and then determine what you can do and what responsibility you will take to accelerate it. Yeah, absolutely. And how important do you, I mean, you talk again um, a lot about people who have backed you in your career and supported you. How important do you think sponsorship and mentoring is to opening up those opportunities and getting people into those leadership roles? Yeah, it's critical. I think what people have to understand, especially the people on this call who will be in a position to help others um, have the authority uh, and the leadership opportunities to do that. Um, you know, underrepresented groups most often at the moment are over mentored and under sponsored. Now, that's not true across the board. There'll be many underrepresented groups who can't find a mentor, but there are more even that can't find a sponsor. And the role of a mentor and a sponsor is quite different. A mentor is like a coach to help you get a good result. Um, and a sponsor is the person who's going to bang the table for you and and fight for you, uh, for you to have an opportunity for your talents to shine, to get the promo, et cetera. And like, I never had, there are some things in my book when I'm talking about that. I was like, I'm not in a gang. I'm not gonna get in a gang. Like there's all this thing about the Blairites and the Brownites. Yes, I am 53 years old. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not in a gang. I, just, I wanna work on the issues. Yeah. And it took me eight years to realize, well, then you're not going anywhere, <laughs> you know? And so just to be able to help underrepresented groups who may not have those networks, who may not have that, um, you know, that, that path laid out for them or know people who've done it uh, to help them and to think specifically about sponsorship, I think that's really critical. So for people on who are listening, get a mentor or a sponsor, but also be one is what you're saying, pass it on, be that person for those other groups that are coming up. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 
something else you referred to earlier um, around failure. Uh, you, you talk about failure really positively. And I think a lot of us have a fear of failure. Like you think, oh God, what if I mess it up? What am I gonna do? Why would I go for that? Because I probably won't get it, that kind of thing. But you said throughout your life, the best things that have happened to you have been born of kind of a failure or lack of getting something. Um, how, can you tell us a bit more about this and give people who are listening some tips on what the more they can do? Yeah, I mean, look, the fundamental thing is um, how can you turn uh, you know, um, the, the cloud of catastrophe into a silver lining? And then how can you turn a silver lining into something very positive? You know, that, that, that is basically it. And so it's a, it's, it's a common thing. You know, people tell you to be positive. They tell you your chances of surviving cancer are better, et cetera, et cetera. However, sometimes it morphs into everything happens for a reason. Like, oh, you know, something terrible happened to you everything happens for a reason. I think you've got to be careful of that because it can be, uh, you know, I just remember so, so often going around like refugee camps or war zones. And it's like, don't tell this mother whose entire family have just been murdered that everything happens for a reason. So I don't want people to think that I'm just sort of the happy clappy, be positive and everything will work out. What I'm saying is there is a specific skill, which I kind of, uh, I, I mean, there's a skill that I recognized later. It's what I did. I mean, I had to be able to do it because, hey, you know, if you lose your job on live TV in front of like more than 10 million people, then you, you've got to find a way to make that not the worst thing that ever happened to you. Um, and then you realize, oh, but genuinely <laughs> that is that there is good that comes out of that. So it's a skill of being able to spot what's that tiny, tiny silver lining like yes it's still the majority is you are devastated this is the worst thing that ever happened to you but what is that tiny silver lining and then how are you going to work each day to expand it and everyone here who's read parts of like the seven habits of highly effective people i'm i'm not very good at those books i but i do read like the first chapter yeah. <laughs> and i always remember getting to at least the first like the first highly effective habit is work out what your sphere of influence is and then grow it grow your sphere of influence, what you can control. And it's basically that concept, but I use it. I have always directed it towards failure. It's like, like work out what is the silver lining. If you can't find any silver lining, then you are going to have to meditate on it until it comes to you. <laughs> and then, and that might take time and space, but you will find it and then you will methodically expand it. Yeah, absolutely. Such a good, that sphere of influence thing is so good as well. But also your positivity, I just think everyone can take that away because so many, everyone's been through failure. Everyone's had that moment where they don't get that thing or, but to, to not be afraid of it means you won't hold yourself back from going for it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so another thing I just uh, thought would be interesting, and I think it's popped up a bit in the chat from what I can see, is that sense of um, sometimes being the only person in the room, the only woman in the room, the only woman of colour in the room. I know you would have experienced that, certainly in your political days. Um, what can people do if they find themselves in that situation? And maybe they're in the earlier stages of their career rather than the senior stages. And I, I speak to a lot of people who say, you know, I'm in the room, but I'm not listened to. Or, you know, when I speak, it's a bit like a lead balloon moment. Or what can I do? What advice can you give to people who are in that situation? Yeah, it's it's a really, really, really difficult one because I know any advice can kind of be bullshit when you're there <laughs> and you're dealing with it um, as I have done. And so that's why I don't think the remedy to this can just come from the people who do not have the influence, who do not have the authority, who are essentially being asked to push the boulder uphill, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think leaders, you know, really need to have some mechanisms in place to ensure that they are listening to those underrepresented groups. And there are some quite obvious ways HR will tell you to do it in terms of how you run meetings and, you know, um, but fundamentally, are you going to be an inclusive leader or not? Um, and what's interesting at Snap and many tech companies is we have been looking at how you can build inclusive leadership into the performance and promo cycle. So if you cannot demonstrate actual, the actual ability 
to to ensure that when someone from an underrepresented group is speaking, it's not like the lead balloon moment. And or what so many have, they have the experience, they say something, people don't really react because no, everyone's trained, you don't react. The same way that, you know, girls from a young end are trained to laugh when boys tell a joke and then a girl tells a joke and it's like silence. In fact, um, God, I can see a teenager putting her head around the door, but my, but my son the other day, he literally said to me, kids that this is what they are trained to do ever sorry this is not this I should not but it just drove me insane the other day my 15 year old son goes to me he says yeah I mean people shouldn't be stereotyped you know I mean when people say women aren't funny I mean there are some funny women out there I'm just like Jesus Christ (laughs) because people are trained that's my son he's like yeah "Yeah, maybe there are some funny so people are trained the same in the business environment someone who's not you know in that group of people that you expect are going to come up with the ideas they say the idea nothing happens lead balloon half an hour later it comes back kind of slightly recirculated and oh it's a brilliant idea and just calling that out when I was at Google we had like a big drive on that exact thing like because it happens so many times to so many people so making leaders aware of that I think is really important but to your point and sorry let me speed up on this for the actual person in that situation look no that you cannot be expected to represent an entire identity group, but that is what's happening. (laughs) It is not a fair expectation. I remember when I stood up to speak at Prime Minister's Question Time and I I literally, well, afterwards I had all these uh, conservative MPs come and congratulate me and they wanted to be my friend and it basically became really apparent they couldn't believe that I could essentially walk and talk (laughs) at the same time um it's no longer acceptable but I did use that like I was like okay if they think it's a miracle that I'm vaguely literate let me put that to my use you can't always do that I know but I just think to um basically um get the support in where you can be more effective with lobbying than I was be more effective at getting your ideas out in other ways than I was Um, and I think if you do that you do have a much a much better chance it's not a very satisfactory answer and I'll tell you why because there is no satisfactory solution to being in that position what you have to do is change the damn representation that's the only thing that will actually change that situation absolutely and you know let me get to some of these questions in the q a i've got one here from lara who actually this is kind of relevant to what we've been talking about what do you think is the best way to affect change when you're not in the c-suite um and we know that if people don't want to change they won't yeah i do think if you're a middle manager i mean obviously it depends where you are um middle managers are in a a very difficult position because they've got leadership uh on top of them and yet and they're bearing down on the ones below to actually drive results and do all the hard work. But I do think there are a couple of things you can do. I think think the hiring, but you know, whoever's involved with hiring and often hiring managers, I mean, again, I'm talking about you know, I'm not, I'm not talking about tiny companies. Um, I, we're doing a report at the moment actually on what the tech industry could do at a cross industry level um, to promote DEI. And one of the really important takeaways is that you have to give this advice according to the size of the business. So, you know, I could say something here that is very relevant for a mid-sized business of like 3000 people or above or, or even 700 people and above, but completely stupid for a company of 50, you know, so you've really got to be aware. And that's what we're going to, oh, that's what our intention is to produce this report with the things that companies should be doing at the appropriate stage in their development. So always have uh, that in mind. But um, I think that you can, you know, you've really got to fundamentally ask the question, who is in the room, Yeah. who, whatever your business is, whatever you do, it may not be a business, it may be a creative organization, who is in the room and who takes the decisions and what can you do, even if you're not C-suite, even if you're not the leader, to open up who gets into the room, to make your organization more porous to new ideas and to people who aren't in the majority, because that's how you make your product better as well. You, You know, we heard at the beginning about, you know, how diversity makes creativity better um and so it, you know that's that's a smart business move as well as ethically being the right thing to do absolutely 
Um, I've got so many questions. Um, so we are, and we're coming towards the end. So I want to get to as many as possible. One of the questions here is about imposter syndrome. How have you, how have you dealt with that in the world of politics, typically dominated by white men? Oh, you know, imposter syndrome for me was never worse than when I came back from the maternity leave of my second child. I should say I'm the only mother of four children I know who's never given birth. So I don't do it the way normal women do it but um you know I my, my three oldest children are adopted um and my youngest is my biological child by surrogacy um so I've never given birth but nonetheless I've had all the obviously uh unbelievable sleepless nights all the problems all the rest of it anyway and I've just by kind of bad timing I came out of that maternity leave having or deciding that I, I should take up the opportunity to run to be Labour's candidate for Mayor of London. And I remember having to go to a hustings um, and, you know, I literally hadn't slept for like, I mean, it, it was like for four years I hadn't slept, but especially in those previous six months. Um, and, you know, you talk about nappy brain and all the rest of it. And I remember having to go on like the Today programme or so, like something like that. And it was the worst performance I've ever given in my life. And I, I honestly thought I just need to go and cry and weep uh, in a room and just, just never come out again. I fought that uh, election um, within the Labour Party, lost to Ken Livingstone, um, and then, but then got offered um, a seat in the House of Lords because I've decided to run basically, you know, saying, hey, we recognize that you ran a great campaign that was valuable for the Labour Party and also to put your hand up and say, I'll have a go. But at the time when I put my hand up to say, yeah, I'll have a go, all I felt was just, this is the worst mistake I've ever made. I am not able to go on national news programs. I'm too exhausted. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know, I just don't know why would I do this? And there was a voice in me going, no, you do it because, because you should do it because you should have a debate <laughs> um, rather than a coronation, you know, for important, part. you know, you should do it, you should do it. Um, and always thinking it was the worst decision of my life. And then, you know, if the consolation prize is feudal privilege and a seat in the House of Lords, I'm just saying, you never know. It's that yeah. thing of you just never know. <laughs> I don't think that happens though, just saying. <laughs> Sorry, say that again. That happens to everyone, obviously. No, no, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. You're absolutely right. Um, but I just mean it was the word. I, I, I've never felt so ashamed, really, of a political performance. And therefore, I've never felt more of an imposter. Yeah. And the reason for that was because I was a working mother who could just, you know, you know that thing when you just literally haven't slept for years. <laughs> it just hit really, really, really hard and it was devastating and it made me cry with just raw anguish and pain because I couldn't bear being in that position either. And then I'm letting down or, you know, there are no other black women out there who are, you know, what are the young girls going to think? And I've given a shit performance. Oh, it was just, it was horrific, but I don't, regret that I did it now it's easy to say afterwards it must be like childbirth I guess but what you've just said putting your hat in the ring you've got to go for things haven't you and people have to go for things it ties to what you said about failure as well but good things can come out of that and putting your hand up um, and getting more on the radar of other people which can lead to those next career opportunities exactly. Exactly. Well, look, we are running out of time I wish I could ask you all these questions I'm going to make sure that they send you them all afterwards because there's some really good ones in here um, one of the questions, though, was just about your three eyes. Lots of people have really picked up on that. Is that something that you see? The question is, like, all the, can it be embedded all the way through the company or is it something that just happens at the top? No, no, we're embedding it all the way through. So we're saying to anyone, whether you're the receptionist at Snap, whether you're a middle manager at Snap, whether you're the CEO at Snap, C-suite, you need to think about internal, interpersonal, institutional. And like I say, some people, they're not very common, but maybe they've only thought about the internal <laughs> and not fundamentally how you're going to change the system. And 
actually, I've always focused on how am I going to change the system and never realized that, hey, this isn't working because until you change the human beings that run the system, until you open their eyes to how they're just not considering real life, the impact of real life and the impact of inequity on so many underrepresented groups, then of course the system's just going to keep spewing out the same result. And I have seen that with my own eyes the last year, well, since George Floyd's murder, I have seen how changing the first eye, the internal, how you think about it, has then changed into personal behavior. So for example, you know, one obvious thing is like, okay, you might, you might mentor someone uh, from, from a school. Well, if you're going to do that, it might be your, it might be your friend's kid well, then you should also mentor and have an interpersonal relationship with someone who's not your friend's kid from yeah. someone you go, you can go to the teacher and say, hey, who would benefit most from this? Who's got no contacts, who hasn't got the networks, et cetera. Or there are lots of different organizations that can facilitate that. But my point is you can't just focus on one. That's why DEI doesn't work because people focus on one or you know, at most two, and they're not doing the most important thing, which is to change how you think about the world. And then you can change your behavior and we hope and we pray, and that's what I'm working on here at SNAP, we are very focused on changing the actual system, changing yeah. how institutions and the system works. Yeah, and the overall culture. Everything you've said has been so practical, and I can see people are taking away things that they can do. And I think there's this notion as well that everyone, that to that C-suite question, everyone can be a leader within their own organisations to make change happen. Um, so look, we're totally running out of time. So I'm sure I could literally talk to you endlessly and I'm pretty sure everyone could listen to you endlessly. Um, what I wanted to just ask you, Una, as a final question was, look, you've been at the top of politics, tech and broadcasting. What's next for you? Oh my God. Um, I would, oh God, I was about to give that worst answer that any politicians have given. I would love to spend more time with my kids. <laughs> I'm not joking. My, my youngest just turned seven and my oldest is 15. Um, anyway, that's not the answer you wanted. No, I'm really, really, <laughs> I'm really, really focused on trying to create a template for how the tech industry uh, and also it merges with the entertainment industry um, and streaming services and content. I would love, I'll tell you, I'll tell you my moonshot. Google, they're big on moonshots. So when I, you know, before I went to Google, I was like, well, if I had it, I'll tell you what my moonshot would be. Um, you know, my kids spend a lot of time on YouTube. Um, I don't, I have two boys and two girls. I hate that my two girls would think they have to be pink princesses and my two boys would think they have to be knuckleheaded cavemen. And although, you know, harmful gender stereotypes harm girls more, they do also absolutely harm boys. So what I would love, and this is my moonshot, is I want as a parent to be able to choose to have a stereotype filter on internet content. So I want when my kids are searching on YouTube or anywhere else that with that stereotype filter, the search results, the content with the least stereotypes would rise to the top of search and those with the most stereotypes would sink to the bottom. And that would also then educate content creators to change those actual lazy stereotypes that are telling women they don't want to go into tech, that are telling black people they're going to be less successful, that are telling disabled people they shouldn't be, uh, you know, in the public realm as their right is. And the same for LGBTQ+, the same for socioeconomic states, etc. So I would love to change the way internet content actually does or doesn't serve up stereotypes. That's further down the line and get a template for the tech industry to drive DEI, which then other industries could look at and we could open source DEI the same way tech, you know, built a lot of its success and innovation on open sourcing technology. Why don't we do that for DEI so people have the tools they need to actually make progress? Amazing. And those biases start really young, don't they? So we have to catch them um, early. Well, look, Una, I've got to bring it to a close. I just want to say a huge, huge thank you for joining us. You have to read this chat after because it is so lovely about you that you're, it's just going to make you feel fantastic. I mean, there's people calling you their hero, everything. Love you. Thank, thank you. So genuinely. No, it's not what my, it's definitely not what my husband calls me. So that, <laughs> that's nice. I really, I'll take that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, oh, thank you yeah, everyone. Thank you. Uh, I will also drop the three I stuff. I haven't put it yet, but I will put it on my LinkedIn bit if people want to see like actual practical examples for each. Um, I will get it up there uh, in the next week or so or sooner. 
I think that'd be hugely, hugely helpful. I will definitely read it as well. Um, I just want to say thank you again for joining us. Thanks to everyone who joined us from all over the world. It's been fantastic spending this um, nearly an hour with you. Um, it's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you, everyone. And thanks again to you, Una. Thanks, Katie. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. Bye. This episode was brought to you as part of our Breakthrough Podcast. Subscribe to keep up to date with upcoming episodes and head to secondhome.io forward slash culture to see what events we have coming up. Thank you.